probably no surprise that Amanda and I, like most grant professionals, are avid readers. We are, because the more you read, the better you write. It helps you learn new words, phrases, and even timing. Exactly. And you know, your word choice can also influence grant makers and reviewers. It can help connect them to your organization and the good work that you do. Y'all may not know this, but I spent a year working for a newspaper, and my main job was to edit that entire paper. That means I'm a darn good editor, but it's nearly impossible for me to edit my own work. It's true. It's true for most of us. And so you might not answer all the questions in the best possible way for the grant maker to understand what you're talking about which is why you may need the mock review service offered by D.H. Leonard Consulting. They provide fresh eyes for any proposal, whether they are the lead writing team or not. You can contact them at dhleonardconsulting.com to learn more about putting your proposal through a mock review. Hello there. I'm Kimberly Hayes-Demuga. And I'm Amanda Day. And you're listening to Season 4 of the Fundraising Heyday Podcast. We're doing more in season four to help nonprofits, local governments, and the consultants who serve them raise more money and get more grants by sharing real-world experiences and interviews with experts in getting the job done. You may hear a y'all or two along the way and singing. Bad singing. And strange sound effects if we leave it up to Kimberly. (laughs) Which are also bad, but I think lovable in a quirky way. (laughs) So... That's right. There's more of us to love in season four with episodes dropping every other week all year long. So let's get into it. This podcast is brought to you by season four sponsor D.H. Leonard Consulting and Grant Writing Services. Don't let grants stress you out. Their team can help you with grant readiness and training, grant research, grant writing, mock review, as well as providing numerous DIY resources, guides, and templates. Did you know that with every Fundraising Heyday episode, we create a coordinating blog post on their website, dhleonardconsulting.com? Check it out today. Grant writing is a misnomer. Usually, you're not writing as much as gathering information, cajoling budget numbers, wrestling with the true meaning of cryptic requests for proposals, scanning documents for the millionth time, and We've spent a lot of time, and I've certainly shared my share of rants about this kind of thing, um, as Amanda has pointed out in loving detail over the years. But um, but today is sort of an origin story for me, um, and it's what got me started in writing grants in the first place, and that's using my words to do good things. Um, it started years ago when I was a journalism major, and it continues to today, and and. What I wanted to take us back to with Amanda, we wanted to take you back to the writing part of grant writing. So as we were planning season four, we were talking about what, who would we like to have talked to us about this? And we thought, hey, who better to talk us through the finer points of writing than a writer? I know. And not just any writer. Today, uh, I'm really trying to hold back my fangirl because I get to introduce our guest, author Jocelyn Jackson. She's a New York Times and USA Today best-selling novelist. Um, Jocelyn's newest book, Never Have I Ever, is out now at your favorite booksellers. And I had to put in a tidbit that our book club read it and we loved it. There was much um, enjoyment. It was good. Yep, yep. It was excellent. Um, her books have been translated into a dozen languages, have won SEBA's Novel of the Year Award. They have three times been number one book since pick. 
have twice won Georgia Author of the Year awards because she's a fellow peach girl. Um, They have been three times shortlisted for the Townsend Prize for Fiction and have been a finalist for the Willie Morris Award for Southern Fiction. So clearly a friend knows what she's talking about. Um, A former actor, Jocelyn is also an award-winning reader of the audio versions of both her own novels and the books of other writers. She serves on the board of Reforming Arts, a nonprofit that runs education in prison and reentry programs. And through this organization, Jocelyn has taught creative writing, composition, and literature inside Georgia's maximum security facility for women. So once again, in our history of just dragging people off the street into recording with us people who've done <laughs> absolutely nothing with their lives and have nothing to do with anything we're talking about. I would like to welcome Jocelyn. We are so excited you could join us today. Oh, thanks, Kimberly. Thanks, Amanda. It's so nice to be here. So we're excited. Oh, I know. I Yay. So if you're okay with it, we'll just hop in with some questions and just see where it takes us. Sure. Let's let's make let's make this thing go. Okay, so here we go. Fun. <laughs> so, good novelists draw in readers with twisty plots or amazing characters or beautiful writing, but the best novelists can do all three. Grant writers work within the nonfiction world but also need to combine many elements to secure grants. This is the world's longest question, by the way. Like commercial <laughs> fiction, most grants are highly structured. They have, they both have commercial fiction and grants, expected word or page counts. Both have to be compelling and answer readers' questions in a way that makes sense um, to either sell a book in a bookstore or to get a grant awarded. So there's some interesting parallels. For the last few years, storytelling has emerged as what every grant should contain. Tons of webinars and, and conferences all about this and books all about storytelling for grant writing. And I'm not sure that everybody is actually understanding how they can make that, take that storytelling and put it into their grant writing. So I'm asking you, Jocelyn Jackson, what kinds of fiction writing techniques do you think would translate to grant writing? Um, actually, it's weird. I think there's quite a few things that you can do to be a more interesting writer. In, in fiction, there's a, there's a formula for narrative drive. And narrative drive is that thing that makes the person want to turn the next page because they have to know what happens. Mm-hmm. And so the formula for narrative drive is really simple. It's you have a, a sentient being, you have a character, and they want something. And there's a barrier between the person and the thing that they want. And that other thing that they, the thing that they want could be a tangible item. It could be the love of another person. It could be to not be murdered by the serial killer. You know, it could be a bunch of things that you want, but there are, there are barriers in your way because I think people are, uh, people are interested in, in stories that have arc and where things you have to move through things to get to the, you know, if you, it's not a good story to be like the dog wanted a cookie and she gave him one. It's a better story if the cookies were perched up on the top of the refrigerator and the dog thought to himself. So you can use the structure <laughs> to create interest for your nonprofit. I think too, if you're, you're telling a story, like here we are, we are people. And, and just like in fiction, you want to be people that, the reader wants to read about like here we are 
just decent human beings like you. We're we're connecting on some level. Um, and we have a goal. We want to, you know, in reforming arts right now with the pandemic, our goal has changed, right? Our goal was always to provide college classes in prison. Well, we can't go into the prison right now. We've also long had a reentry program. So our focus now until we can get back in to, to run classes in prison is turning like the the pipeline, you know, there's a school to prison pipeline. We're trying to create a prison to college pipeline. <laughs> and there are, so, so here we are, these people, and here's a thing we really want to do. That's an interesting thing, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And then there's so many barriers in the way of doing that. <laughs> just a few. Or two. What? Just a few. Yeah, just a few. So, you know, you, we have, and these are our challenges. And if you, now you're part of the story person I'm writing the grant to, you're one of the ways we can resolve this narrative tension. This grant will allow us to solve this problem in these ways. So you set it up, the, the, the way that you give the information creates tension and release. Um, it, it also, I also think it's important to think about like, it's good, it's good to have facts and it's really important that your facts and numbers be correct. Sure. But I mean, I think we're all so sophisticated now. I think everybody knows that numbers are massageable and the way you ask the question makes a big difference. Like you can argue with numbers and statistics all day long. It's very hard to argue with testimony. Mm-hmm. It's very hard to argue with a person saying, look, here is a true story that happened to me where this organization changed my life in these really specific ways, or this organization gave me the tools to let me create this or so that it's, so that it's personal and human. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that like those things, if you can bring narrative drive and that tension and release and the human element of, connection and testimony into a grant proposal, I think it's better. Oh, I'd agree. And it's funny you mentioned both the data and the storytelling. Kimberly and I both teach a lot of intro to writing classes. And I don't know about you, Kimberly, but anytime I teach, say, like the need statement section of a grant where you're explaining, here's all kind of, here's all the barriers, right, that are going on. Um, when we turn them loose to kind of write drafts of their own, everybody always focuses on the numbers and the data and that kind of thing. And which I get that that's important, but a big part of my job I feel when I'm teaching is that's great, but you got to balance it with a story because numbers to some people don't mean a whole lot. They want that, they want that connection with the human person. Right. So I, I think that storytelling element is so vital. I think it's important, and I think a lot of people who get into grant writing may not come from it as, you know, from journalism or as an English major or whatever else might have uh, might uh, draw you into it. Some people come to it from the finance department, and they're used to thinking in numbers and stats, and those things are important, as Jocelyn said, but it's just, it's not the whole enchilada. I do have a super quick example. Amanda, now that you brought it up, I was teaching um, the intro grant writing class. I think it was in Montgomery, Alabama, and we surprisingly do the same exercises when we teach because consistency but um the, a young woman 
uh, in her needs statement, I still remember this, and it was about a year and a half ago, and like I can't remember what I had to eat yesterday. So this is saying a lot. <laughs> she, she said uh, – she wrote – she was reading it aloud uh, for feedback, and she cited some details, and it was a, it was a transition program um, similar to reforming arts, but it was dealing with juvenile justice. So these were not um, – these were um, not – adults who are transitioning out. But the, the line that she wrote was, um, for most of the, for most of the children leaving this, whatever the facility's name was, they have a bus ticket and whatever pocket change they had left when they were brought in. And it was like, Oh, okay. You can, you know, right there that that's not really setting up for success, that that's not really, the um the 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 good path to help them achieve anything except maybe sliding back into the life they had before. So I just remember that as just a really telling detail of how someone who was just getting started in grant writing was able to sort of see those details and and not tell the whole story, um, but d- definitely building that sort of narrative tension about what would happen if there was no money to help this person who just has a bus ticket and some pocket change. Right. And there's a big difference between me saying, right, there's a, I think there's a big difference between me saying, you know, the average person when they are released from prison, they're given $25 and set loose upon the world. And that is, you know, that's pretty flat. Mm -hmm. And if you think about it, that's, it's, it's kind of terrible because what can you do with $25? I mean, that's not, if you don't have a kitchen, that's not even food for a day, you know, that's not even like fast food for a day if you don't have a place to store and cook food. Um, so it, I think it's more, you know, to, to put it in those terms and, the, you know, the amount of money you get when you leave the prison, you're handed $25. And right. here's a specific person who, you know, is renting a room or has a room and maybe a hot plate and, and put it in terms of like, what can you actually buy with $25? Right. And how long is that going to last you? Like it, it, it's, it's kind of those little details. I, I think God is in the details. Yep. Absolutely. So some of, a lot of the themes that I have found reading, reading your novels, they're themes of grace and redemption, but they're also sort of ideas about systemic issues, societal issues that are uncomfortable to talk about or are often surrounded by lots of facts and things like domestic abuse and um, fighting for social justice. They, they surface in your novels uh, for me as I read them, but it's never a beat the reader over the head kind of thing. And it's never done in in a way that feels exploitive as I have read other books and seen other movies that um, do things in that way. I think as grant writers and as fundraisers, um, we can often struggle with how to talk about these difficult issues without either doing the, you know, oh, poor victim sort of victimization right. part of it or that sort of, I call it disaster porn, like, you know, where you're just like, oh, the wretched <laughs> lives of the poor. And it's like, wow, that's, that's just wrong on a lot of levels. But it's easy language to fall into, particularly when you are not living, you know, you're not in that community that you're writing grants to serve. So we would, I'd love to hear any advice you might have to get us to sort of think about the words we use and the power of them and how to use that for good when we're talking about these difficult things. 
Um, if I think of writing for, for me, writing fiction is the deliberate act of empathy. Mm-hmm. Like you sit down and you, you spend the time like not talking about someone, but trying to, trying to live an imagined experience. Mm-hmm. And, um, I have had, I've had a, an interesting life. <laughs> so I guess that makes it a little easier um, <laughs> if you have been blessed with an interesting life. It's easier to um, to to find broader paths for empathy. But um, I, I also think that reading is is an act of empathy. Like people who read fiction tend to be more empathetic people. And you know, of course, that's a chicken or egg thing. Like, does reading make you more empathetic, or is it just that people who don't have much empathy don't tend to read? Which you yeah, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't say it. You heard it, but I didn't say it. Um, <laughs> but the, um, I guess the when you're the farther you are from speaking or for me, the farther I am from my own experience, mm-hmm. the more respect I have to bring to bear before I'm allowed to speak in terms of being a writer. So if I'm going to write, you know, I have a, a, a book where there is a deaf blind character. The, the narrator's mother is deaf blind, deaf and blind. And I, I'm not deaf and blind, and I was not raised by a person who is deaf or blind. So that is a community that if I'm going to present their reality, I need to be very embedded in that community. I need to be living in that community. I need to be in conversation with that community. Mm -hmm. And I think it's very hard to serve a community you don't love. Like, I mean, I've done fundraisers for things, but like for me, you know, with my work with reforming arts, which is very, very important to me, like it matters to me that I'm going into the prisons and teaching that these are my students. These are human beings that I come to know and their lived experience is certainly not mine. Um, My students are all different ages and they're all different races and they're all different orientations what almost all of them have in common is literally almost all. They come out of grinding, unimaginable poverty. And many of them also come out of disordered family situations because those things very often go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. Um, less, less come out of like completely disordered family situations. Some, some of them have, have good family connections, but even the ones with really good family connections grew up with food insecurity, lodging insecurity. Um, And so, you know, for me to be able to speak on behalf of these people who can't speak for themselves because they are incarcerated, Mm -hmm. um, it's really about knowing them and listening before you talk. That's, I mean, such simple advice, but how many of us actually do that? Amanda, I was just thinking about that. Like, so often you're sitting at your desk and you're on deadline and you're like, what's another word for support? What's another word for me? What's another? Okay, come on. It's five o'clock. Let's go. Let's go. And, And maybe building into that, or if you're a consultant, you're even twice removed, is just making sure, like you and I, we um, 
have a client in common that's a primary care clinic here in Atlanta. And so one of the first things we did when we started working with this client was go to one of their clinic nights to actually meet the people and see what's going on. Because how about that? But I think that is a crucial step that often gets overlooked in just the day-to-day drama of trying to grind things out to get money. Yeah, I, I think, I, and you don't want to be, like, you will get called on it, I think, eventually. Oh, yeah, you do, yeah. <laughs> or, in our case, maybe you don't get called, like, you don't get the call, and you don't get the grant, and you don't get the money to help do these better things, so, yeah. Right. One way or another, you're absolutely right. Yeah, and I like to repeat one of the things you said in your answer there, Jocelyn, I even wrote it down because I loved it. You said, writing fiction is the deliberate act of empathy. And I just think that's beautiful because I, I think grant writing is, it's the same thing. I, it, I hope it, is. I, it completely makes sense to me that those things are very, very related in terms of sitting down to you and, and not sympathy and not, you know, interest and not prurience, but, yeah. but empathy. Yeah. like mm-hmm. this, if you're, if you're working with a nonprofit, you're trying to take care almost always of some kind of social injustice. So yeah. Absolutely. Well, so speaking of that, you teach writing at the state women's prison and you serve on the board of the nonprofit agency Reforming Arts. Um, How did you get involved with these agencies and how has this changed your writing at all? Oh, hugely changed my writing. Um, The how I got involved is kind of a funny story. I am I am a pragmatist. I'm just not a woo woo kind of a person. Uh Um, I'm just not. And I was at at church with my husband and there was a little squib in the bulletin that said, people interested in prison ministry should um, meet at this library. And it it was just like one line on a whole sheet of a bunch of words with opportunities or requests or, you know, supper club on Wednesday night. And, And it was one sentence buried and it it just lit up and I gra- I was like I have to go to this meeting and my husband was like what do you mean you have to go to the meeting and I didn't know I didn't know how to answer that like I just said I have to go to this meeting and um I've never really I don't I felt called to it was I I've never felt anything like that before in my whole life or since so I go to this meeting and Kimberly knows me very well. Kimberly, how am I, what do you, what would you say? What's my level of organizational skills? <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, they're, they're in a, in a realm by themselves, Jocelyn. They're uniquely. Yes, the organizational skill I have lives on a far plane, far from here. I don't, I'm, uh, I'm autistic. I have very poor executive function. Um, so when I get there, it's this whole big meeting about how to organize, like, and this is important stuff, you know, it's important to do, but like, it's, it's how to, it's how to like get, get and distribute shampoo and organize driving routes. And I'm sitting there going, Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> and I'm, I'm thinking, like, this is so dumb, you stupid hippie, with your, oh, I've been called by some great force to show up at this meeting to, to organize a shampoo drive, which if, if you want, if you put that in my hands, like, no one will ever have clean hair again. Like, ever. 
It will spread throughout the state, not just the facility, but it's <laughs> so I'm thinking, okay. And so then one of the things the guy was said, he said to everybody there, he was like, let's go around and just say who we are and why we're interested in this and blah, blah, blah. And one of the people there was Wendy Ballou, who is the executive director of Reforming Arts. And when she said, I'm Wendy Ballou, I run Reforming Arts, our mission is to provide college level education and partnership. You know, we're, we're trying to work but at that point. They were in negotiations and we now are in partnership with Georgia State University. Like this has grown from like one day teaching a, vol a theater class, you know, once a week, to a, a program that works in tandem with Georgia State for degree seeking people. Um, so and, and she starts talking about she says like three sentences and that same light happened. And I was like, oh, that's why I'm here. So and I like as soon as the meeting was over, I stood up and I walked over to her. I'm so graceful and uh, <laughs> socially adept. I said, hey, I don't want to do any of this. I want to work with you. <laughs> and I've been, I started, she was like, oh, oh okay. So I started like, she said, why don't you just come in as a guest teacher, choose one of your favorite novels, and you can come in as a guest teacher for like a three-week arc and just, you know, run a, a piece of my literature class. What would be a good book? And I said, oh, To Kill a Mockingbird. I had oh. no idea where she was laughing. Oh, <laughs> oh wow. But, yeah. So that was my first experience was going into a maximum security prison to teach a three week seminar on To Kill a Mockingbird. And wow. Yeah. A year later, I was on the board. I've yep. been on the board. Yeah. I, it is, it was, it was, I, and that's a book I've read at least every two years or so since I was maybe nine. And it's always becomes a different and a fresh book for me. But wow, was that a different and a fresh book read with these human beings under sure. those circumstances? So I that's bet. why I came to Reforming Arts. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, that was long, but. No, but oh, it was fascinating. Great. And I think shampoo distributors all across the nation are grateful <laughs> that <laughs> you turned no, to the. Welcome. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but then. So with my writing, like th there were little things where, you know, I've always written about, I, I would say feminism is, you know, I'm a, I think I'm a feminist writer. I write about, um, I've I, I, write, I write a lot about sex and power dynamics and the dynamics and the fallout from violence. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, the one thing that's really changed in my work is how much I write about economic disparity now, because I didn't see it. Like we we've set up our country to where we don't have to see it. I, I think that's, that's terrible. Like it's, it would be much better if we lived in a place where we saw what other people's lives were actually like, instead of in, if you can afford this much house, you will live with people who can afford this much house in your little houses all the same or your little apartments all the same or your little uh, private helicopter jet pad mansions all the same. Sure. So, my, mine is certainly my, my, my private helipad is like everyone else's. So I know, I know. Yeah, I like lavender, but the homeowners association. Yeah, it's like, a real problem. Yeah. <laughs> we, um, but just being in a place where, you know, 
these, and, and I come from like, I have a, there's some economic disparity in my family background. Like I have some relatives who are not well off. They are below the poverty line. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, it wasn't entirely foreign to me, but I, you know, I grew up working class and then my, my parents, by the time I was in high school, my parents were beginning to enter the middle class. And by the time I was ready to go to college, my father had had some really amazing successes and we were moving into the upper middle class. So I was very, I had a very economically mobile childhood where, um, so I, I saw a lot of different socioeconomic levels, but they were all basically middle class, like barely, like I remember my mom losing a $5 bill in the grocery store and just like, she just sat down and cried. Like she, she it was just like, she did not know what she was going to do. And she could not, she, she, there was a bench. I remember she was just like, okay, we're just getting, and she just sat there and there was just this flurry of tears. And then she just got herself together and she redid everything. And she was like, okay, rice, you know, like she figured it out. But yeah. that, like, that was my little, little childhood. So, but mm-hmm. even then, like we had dinner, we, we were never kicked out of our house. So, and I, I guess that doesn't make my book sound super fun. I'm writing murder mysteries that are really this They are like I think that's my job as a novelist is to write a page turner that has a lot of kissing and shooting, usually within a couple of pages of each other. I like that stuff. Sure. But that lights up the way the world is for some people, and that tries to be um, truthful and f- fair. So, um, and so, so like just thematically, I think the spectrum of my empathy has broadened and I think it's made me a much better, more interesting and more layered writer. Oh yeah. Well, I think, I mean, all of your experience certainly shape how you can write and that kind of stuff. And so I'd say it changes us for the better, the more we experience everything. I think we should also maybe get Wendy on one day because she can talk to the power of listening and volunteer recruitment because she, I just want, I can, I was just sort of put myself in her place when you walked over to her that day and you're like, I'm not going to do any of this shampoo stuff. I'm out, but what can I do? And she heard you and, and, and made that connection. Um, Yeah. So just a side tangent there when people want to help go to them where they are, you know, if you <laughs> just want to point that I'm just I think it's a beautiful story. Mm-hmm. But um so I I wanted to shift just a little and talk about um more lighter weight things although before we we do that not only is there like kissing and guns and stuff and and your books but also you blow things up every once in a while so you know, listeners, I, do not think you're not going to be preached to. You're just going to be like, "What? What's happening next?" It's I'm just saying. So I do like a good fire. Yeah, yeah, you do. I mean not that there's anything wrong with that, but, um, and so your most recent book, um, was called never have I ever, and it was optioned for a series, although it's probably going to be under a different name, right? Because there was another completely unrelated series on Netflix that was called never have I ever. Did, yeah, I, thanks, yeah. Mindy Kaling. Um, whatever. I oh. <laughs> whatever, Mindy. Um, <laughs> that title didn't even make sense, Mindy. Yeah, it'll have oh. a different title. 
and it's in development. We're in script writing now. They've changed script writers, so it was kind of a reboot. Um, but it's on the fast track, and that means nothing. I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> it really means nothing. I get a check, which I like. I always like that. Okay. There you go. Um, I, they, I, I get paid for the option. I, I'm not really, you know, I have a film agent. I have, like, you know, people hear about this and they get excited, but writers very seldom get excited. I almost always have at least one or two of my books in development, but which I, you know, I say that like, oh, bleh, that is a huge privilege and it's amazing. And I'm very, very lucky. That said, getting out of development and into shooting, that is a long, long road. Okay. Um, and it just hasn't happened yet. You know, I, I don't have a book that has not been optioned. Um wow. I've had, this is my, I think, third time that we've gotten to the point of this this type, like they call it building up, but you build a package where you, you bring in script writers and producers and networks. And the more things get added to your package, the more likely it is to go. And the bigger those names are that get added to your package, the, the more likely it is to go. This is a really good package that's coming together. The, the person who's writing the script is... Um, she came out of Shondaland. She's got some. Oh, wow. Oh, fancy. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's with Fox and there's, there's several other producers on board that are kind of big name, serious people. And so it's going really well right now. And I just, I just got another check. So I'm really happy. Hey, and that, that just sounds like a really good deal. So you're, you're a producer, but you are not, actively involved in adapting the book. Well, to means nothing. When you see producer, I don't know. I don't think any of them do anything. <laughs> <laughs> there's different kinds of producers. Like they're like executive producers. There's producers that have huge, big jobs that take 80 hours a week. And then there's like, I produced a book that they were turning into a thing. So I okay. am a producer. Like, and I, I would be in the credits. Like I am a person who generated these ideas and it's not, you don't always get that credit even as the, like that was the thing my agent fought for was to get me a producer credit as one of the people who created these ideas and these people. Nice. Hey. Very cool. So I think, Amanda, you have a question coming up about another person who's super familiar with adaptations and drama. Yeah. So Kimberly and I before have talked about Stephen King's book on writing. And in that book, he talks about to be a better writer, you need to be an avid reader. And Kimberly and I both agree with that sentiment. So in that case, what are some of your favorite books? We know you love To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, but what else? What are some of your favorite books you've read, whether this year or of all time? Um, this year, I read a book. A book called Mexican Gothic that I think. Oh, that's, oh, that's yes. sorry, that's good. I read that. Yes. <laughs> oh God, it's my book of the year. Like when people are like, "What was your favorite book in 2020?" And I read a lot in 2020. Mexican Gothic is I I've I've already read it. I think twice. I've bought five copies to send it to people. I loved it. Um, I I read a short story collection called Love and Color that I really liked. Um, there was a little tiny vicious sliver of a book. It was so delicious. My sister, the serial killer loved. Um, I just finished a book called the heiress, which is a, I love Jane Austen takeoff. Mm -hmm. It's one of those and it's beautiful. 
So I read, I, I read very eclectically. My favorite writers of all time are probably Lydia Netzer. She wrote Shine, Shine, Shine. Um, and Clary O'Connor. Um, everything that rises. I gen, I genuflected briefly, but go ahead. Yeah. Um, I, and I, I love Haven Kimmel. Like I, I mostly, I tend to read more women than men, which maybe is sexist, but I feel okay with it. Yeah. <laughs> I think you're going to get a pass. I think that's going to be okay. Yeah, I think you're okay with that. Although um, I, don't I want do to... love Stephen King. I, I realized about eight books into my career, every single one of my books had reference to Stephen King book in some way or another. Every single one. Nice. Well, see, now I want to go back and find those references. Hmm. Uh, a little project for you. Done, like what? <laughs> Oh, I just, said you say, little, I just said it was a little project for you over the holidays. Yeah, there you, there go. you go. A little yes. deep read, a little little accents, little things. Mm -hmm. In your copious spare time that we all that have. That we all have. That we all have. Oh, yes. Absolutely. <laughs> um, not to, I have to delve in because uh, I don't know a whole lot of people in my circle that have read me Mexican Gothic. And obviously, I don't want to give a spoiler to anybody who hadn't read it yet. But when we discovered the source of that haunting, oh. was that not? That was oh. the wildest thing ever. Like I'm oh. like, if, if they had asked me to guess a thousand ways this house is haunted, that would not have made my list. No, that would not have made. But it, it's one of those things. Like to quote Flannery O'Connor, she says the end of a book should be both surprising and inevitable. And on the second read, the setup is perfect. It's all present. It's all there. There. Yeah. True. And I love the um, the heroine. Like she's so. Like, like, and I, so ever, so uh, let's, let me see if I can think of her name. It's Sylvia, I can never remember if it's Morena Garcia, or Garcia Morena. It's very close to that. Sylvia is her first name. But I ended up reading a bunch of her other books because she's, I, I love Mexican Gothic so much. And she very often has, like, they're very different characters, but they all have, in the three books of hers I've read now, they're young. And they have a real sense of their own value. Mm -hmm. And I love reading a book about a young woman who has a sense of her own value. And it's true. I, I, I just find that it, I, it's just almost room. It's, it, I felt wooed by it. I was not a young woman who had a good sense of my own value. <laughs> um, I don't think yeah. Same. Oh, yeah. one of one of my favorite characters, and I'm going to forget her name because I'm bad about. I remember the gist of every book I've ever read, but the details sometimes escape me. But um, my favorite of yours is all, the Almost Sisters, oh, and you. the main character in there. I just adore her and her. She's strong. Leia she doesn't is always know it. Yeah, I'm always interested in my main characters. I would not necessarily want to share a flat with them, but I would be <laughs> fair, fair, fair assessment. <laughs> Okay. She's pleasant company. Yes, I would say so. And I would say so. too, if you're listening now and you're like, ladies, what does this have to do with grant writing? Allow me to explain. The, <laughs> the more the more eclectic your reading is, the more you spend time playing with and loving the language, the less time you're gonna spend at 4:30 when the grants due at five o'clock trying to think of another word for support. It's just like exercising mm -hmm. your reading muscles, I think, makes you also a better writer, no matter what genre you may be writing in. Well, it teaches you different cadence. It teaches you not only new words, but just 
like I said, the, the rhythm of the writing and the way the stories are told. And I, I think there's a place for, you know, I can appreciate the James Patterson books who each chapter is like three pages and you can zoom through those books because sometimes we have what 500 words to tell our story and we need to be able to zoom through right but then also you need the more uh loquacious or whatever you want whatever word you want to use there to to understand how to do that when you have more space to tell your story so absolutely so well jocelyn thing like if you can find that one if the bigger your vocabulary is the more likely it is you can find that word that's going to unlock it for you and say the thing that you're you know like pin that b and say the thing that you mean absolutely so well jocelyn if listeners want to find out more about you and your books or even about the reforming arts organization what's the best way to to reach out Oh, well, our website is reformingarts.org. And um, the best way to learn about reforming arts is if you go right there, just sign up for a newsletter or spend a little time on the website. Or if you have, if you're just like, oh, what am I going to do with all this money? (laughs) Money shovel and do it our way. We will put it to good use and you can do all that on the website. Um, oh. I, mean, I learned from Kimberly how to not be shy about asking for money. Like she actually never be shy. Oh, I am. I am touched and moved, and you did that. <laughs> I did well, and I'd like to say that I think for the first time ever on the podcast, I just snorted. You had me laughing so hard. So good job. <laughs> we're gonna. We're gonna. The sound engineer is not going to take that out. I think oh, we're no, authentic in our <laughs> stay, stay. And if you're interested in my books, I'm Jocelyn, which is spelled weirdly, J-O-S-H-I-L-Y-N, JocelynJackson.com. And you can see all my books there and read about them and see if it might be your kind of thing. Absolutely. Excellent. Well, it's, it's, I don't even know how to describe it. I need to read more to find the right word. It's been <laughs> it's been oddly funny and tense at the same time because we've talked about some deep topics, but also um, some more lighthearted things. And I just think it's been a wonderful use of my time. And I hope that, same. and I know that Amanda feels the same way. And we just really, really appreciate you sharing your experience and your expertise to help people like us fine tune our work and also talk about books because we totally dig that so well thank you pod- for having me yeah kimberly it's our podcast so we can talk it's about our podcast we, we, talk we want to okay <laughs> whatever y'all thanks like so much for joining us <laughs> <laughs> thanks jocelyn we really appreciate it bye bye thank you again to our season four sponsor dh leonard consulting and grant writing services We appreciate their support in making grants less stressful. Visit their website, dhleonardconsulting.com, to download their latest free resources today. Thank you so much for listening. We wouldn't do it without you, and we couldn't do it without you. Join us on our Fundraising Heyday community page on Facebook to keep the conversation going. We are honored that you chose to spend time with us, and we'd love for this podcast to be a part of your professional development lineup. Thanks again for joining us today. We appreciate you and hope you tune in for the next episode about recognizing and repairing professional burnout. See you then, friends. Bye, y'all.